I grew up as the middle child of five, and there was only seven years from the oldest to the youngest. We weren't the quietest children. Once or twice when we were in full swing, in the middle of our fun and frivolity, doing things that we should not have been doing, my father would walk into the room. We were often so intent on what we were doing that we didn't notice at first that he had walked in, but when we did, everyone would stop. All eyes would turn to my father because we knew that what we were doing was wrong. This is the image that comes to mind as Moses descends from the mountain. He comes upon the people of Israel in the midst of their raucous celebration. After sacrificing to their new idol, their chosen God, they sat down to eat and drink, and then they got up to party, which is perhaps a euphemism for other behaviors. You can almost see their awareness of Moses' presence spreading like a wave over the people. They know what they have been doing is wrong. Perhaps a few of them quickly pull their clothes back on, while others sidle in front of the calf, trying to hide it from Moses' sight. But it is too late. Moses has already seen more than enough. Moses turns to Aaron and he says, What have you done? And Aaron does what all leaders are tempted to do when they are caught red-handed. He desperately tries to shift the blame. Moses, we, we didn't know you were going to come back. Why, why did you take so long? Moses, you need to understand the people were desperate, scared. They needed something to give them hope. And the calf, well, the calf just happened. It appeared out of the fire. Aaron's excuses get weaker and weaker as he digs himself into the pit of deceit and blame. And that brings us to the place where this story is very hard to read. In fact, this next part of the story is abhorrent to us, and I don't think there's an easy way to understand it. Moses grinds up the golden calf, makes the people swallow their God, and then sends the Levites through the camp with swords and 3,000 people are killed. If that were not enough, God then sends a plague on the people. We need to understand Exodus 32-34 to 34 stands as the penultimate moment in the story of the people's escape out of Egypt. Over and over again, they have met various challenges. Pharaoh, the Egyptians, hunger, thirst, desperation. Every time, every time, God has provided. We're told that God has been testing them, which means He's been working to form in their hearts trust and confidence in who He is. Faithful, gracious, generous. And God is doing that so that even when their situations are overwhelming, they will know and trust their God. And now Moses descends from the mountain with the commandments, God's law, God's gift to them, the work of God's hands. 
which he has given to them to guide them as to how they should live as God's people. The story's coming to its climax when the people will finally and fully be able to trust God and to give themselves to him. The only appropriate response to the way that God has so faithfully provided, guided, and taught them, shaped them so they will be able to trust him and put their confidence wholly in him. God has earned their trust. But that's not what happens. Instead of this crucial moment in the story of God's shaping of his people, they reject God and then they blame God for what has gone wrong. God, if only you had acted more quickly. God, if you had communicated to us. God, if you had not deserted us or made us feel all alone. The tablets shattered at the foot of the mountain mirror the fracturing of the people's relationship with God. They are broken. And the chapter ends with dire warnings of what is yet to come. Their act of idolatry, creating a golden calf, is shocking, not so much because they make an idol for themselves, as because they are declaring who they want God to be. Indeed, idolatry is not simply the making of idols. It is God's people turning their hearts and minds to something or someone other than God, all the while claiming that they are worshiping God. Idolatry is the deceit of believing that we get to choose who God is and that we get to discern what matters to God. Does that sound familiar? However we try to understand the violence in this story, we need to understand this. The violence does not expose a character flaw in God. It does not suggest that this God, while claiming to be faithful, is actually capricious. No, this violence exposes the utter folly and the destructive nature of, God, of the people's rejection of God and the devastating consequences of that rejection. What is particularly sobering, of course, is the recognition that in our churches today we prove just as quick to seek other gods, even while we claim to worship God. Money, power, influence, these are the gods we seek, and these gods are capricious. It is the worship of these gods which leads to violence and destruction. In the light of our own unfaithfulness to God, you and I should be left at the foot of that mountain with nothing more than shattered tablets and fractured relationships. Except the Exodus story does not end here. In Jesus Christ, we have the full story. God's word come down to us, not simply as commandments written on stone, but the desires and hopes of God embodied in human flesh. And our violence is exposed for what it is. It's not God's violence against us, it is our violence against God. Jesus Christ, God with us, fractured and broken on the cross, silences our excuses, exposes our folly, 
and swallows the destructive results of our idolatry. On the cross, Jesus reveals that to reject God, to act as though we get to choose who God is and what God is like, cannot help but bring utter chaos and destruction into our world. But Jesus reveals this not to condemn us, but to deliver us. Because in Jesus Christ, we are carried to the proper end of the Exodus story. At the penultimate moment, Jesus does not choose another God. He chooses to obey, to trust. And in that, he realizes the intended end or telos of the Exodus story, human flesh made whole in its proper relationship with God. And where Moses once interceded for the people of Israel, Jesus intercedes for us. Seated at the right hand of the Father, he continues to intercede for us as the one who brings us to the true exodus, so that we, without shame, can look fully upon the Father. Thanks be to God.